0: Welcome to Grassroots Health. My name is Tim Jordan, and I'm the host of this podcast. I welcome you. Thanks for listening. If you care about health, yours, or other people's, then this podcast is for you. It's distributed monthly on the first Monday of each month. Best of all, it's free. You can find it wherever you get your podcast. Grassroots Health is sponsored by the 1795 Group. Check us out at 1795group.com. Thanks again for joining us today. Enjoy the podcast. This is our first episode of Grassroots Health, and I'm so happy to bring this to you. Since I'm the founder and director of the 1795 Group, the team thought it would be wise for you to learn more about me. Therefore, I asked my friend, Vicki Dugat if she would interview me. So she interviewed me about my background and what I've seen in the field of health over the years. Let's listen in. Welcome. My name is Dr. Tim Jordan, and this is Grassroots Health. This is the first episode of our podcast, sponsored by the 1795 Group. And I'm... Very happy today to introduce to you Vicki Dugat. Vicki is going to serve as our host. Vicki, do you want to greet our audience at all?
1: Absolutely. Hi, everyone. My name is Vicki, and I am a doctoral candidate, and I look forward to graduating, but I look more forward to talking about you, Dr. Jordan. And yeah, I bet, I bet you are looking 5-3. forward.
0: Yeah. I was going to say, I bet you are looking forward to that graduation date. So I am. <laughs> uh, I know all doctoral students of the past have done so. So today is our first episode of this new podcast called Grassroots Health. Um, mm-hmm. Next month, we have Dr. Michael Osterholm from the University of Minnesota. Mike is a national figure. We'll talk more about him later. But today, the focus is going to be really kind of an interview of me. And uh, so I'm going to shut up. I'm going to let our host take over. And uh, let's go.
1: All right. Thank you, Dr. Jordan. So we'll start off with you telling us about yourself. Can you tell us about your background, your family, and why you got into health education and public health?
0: Well, I'm I'm a graduate of Bowling Green State University. I won't tell you what year because that makes me feel very, very old. I'm a graduate (laughs) of the College of Education. I have a degree in K through 12 comprehensive school health. And so my dream was to be a classroom teacher to teach health in a K through 12 school my my entire career. That was my dream. So I worked in K through 12 schools um, for eight years. My first eight years of my career became an assistant principal, was a varsity basketball coach of the boys team. Um, Those were good years. I learned a lot. But my principal, Doran Snyder, was resigning. And he approached me and said, I'd like you to be principal. (laughs) And I saw how Mr. Snyder spent most of his day. I did not want to be the policeman of the school. Mm -hmm. I just, that was not me. And so I also resigned and became a master's student at UToledo, came to UToledo, became a master's student, got my MED, um, Mm -hmm. then continued, got my PhD, and then I didn't know what to do. And I was at a graduation party with one of my friends actually from the doctoral program at UT, Vicki, the same mm-hmm. program that you're in. And okay. she said, hey, I put in your name for the, my position. I'm, I'm going to Pennsylvania for a medical school position. And I think you'd be great. Wow. I don't have any medical background. I never mm-hmm. trained physicians. And so one thing led to another and there I was, I, I took the associate director of graduate medical education position for Mercy Mercy Health System, Northern Region wow. here in Toledo, um, did that for seven or eight years, and then UT kept calling, and uh, Dr. Susan Teljan she kept calling every few years, and mm-hmm. they had a position open. Uh, one of my mentors, Dr. Jerry Fulton, and taught Death and Nine. Mm-hmm. He retired in ninety nine two thousand, and I kind of knew his position was open, and it was intriguing to me. And so here I am. I'm at U Toledo since 2001. Um, You also want to know about my family. Yeah, let me tell you about my family. Uh, My family is, um, well, I grew up in Rossford, Ohio. So Rossford's a suburb of Toledo. I had two great parents, excellent teachers at Rossford. My dad died in June 2017. Uh, My mom is still alive. And I have a sister, Debbie, who is five years younger than me. Um, she's married to a pediatric dentist in the Dayton area, and she's the vice president of operations for VITAS, which is the largest oh, awesome. provider of, I think, palliative care and hospice in the United States. I've been married to the same woman for 42 years this coming November. Uh, her name mm-hmm. was Pam Carter. Uh, our dads worked together at Libyons Ford Glass Company. We have two mm-hmm. adult children, Jeff and Kate. Both are nurse practitioners Jeff works for university hospitals in the Cleveland area, and Kate works for Vanderbilt Medical Center in the Nashville, Tennessee area. Uh-huh. And then Jeff and Kelly have three children, so we have three grandkids. So we're grandparents, um, and they are the light of our life. Jackson, Aubrey, and Amelia are their names, and so that's, that's a little bit about my family. Um, awesome. I think you also asked why I got into health, and I have why you got to,
1: into health education. In yeah,
0: that. why I got into health education. So we have to give the blame to Mr. John Wimberly, who doesn't mean okay, anything well, to you. <laughs> Mr. John Wimberly was my high school anatomy and physiology teacher at Rossford, and he made it so interesting. It was fascinating to me to see how the human body was put together. I just like mm-hmm. couldn't get enough of it. And I knew then I wanted to do something in the health field. I didn't know what. Um, Then at Bowling Green State, once I got there, uh, I had great, great professors, Dr. Jim McKenzie, whose textbook Mm -hmm. I still use in my methods and materials class, Dr. Clay Williams, John White. um, They just confirmed that choice that I was in the Mm -hmm. right field because they were so, so good. Mickey Cochran, I remember Mickey teaching first aid and I just those people really confirmed it, and then um, I got into UT after teaching, and I had greater mentors. Dr. James mm-hmm. Price was my doctoral mentor. Susan Teljohn was my master's degree mentor. Um, I, I just I'm, I've been very blessed with mentors. Funny mm-hmm. aside, Vicky, I'll tell you, um, Dr. Teljohn and I were at Bowling Green State University at the same time as undergraduates. Wow. But we can't remember ever meeting each other. We're exactly the same age. She grew up in Kenton, Ohio, near where my dad grew up. And we were we kind of reminiscing. and said, you were at Bowling Green? I was at Bowling Green. Yeah, I was at Bowling Green. You played basketball? Uh, she played on the women's basketball team. I never remember meeting her, but we were there the same okay. year. So that's kind of funny. So anyway, that's that's enough about me.
1: Okay. So I know you started off talking about your career as a sixth grade teacher and I'm not going to say the year because I don't want to give away your age. (laughs)
0: That's okay.
1: (laughs) That is a 41 year career as a professional health educator, Dr. Jordan. What has changed the most in those 41 years in the field of health education and public health?
0: Mm, That's a great question. What's changed the most? In 41 years, well, I think, I think a, th- a couple things have changed. Um, number one, the rich have gotten richer and the poor have gotten poorer. Um, I, I okay. see a smaller percentage of US society controlling wealth and power. And most of us, the 90% of us below them have gotten, have become worse off. Um, and the statistics bear me out on that as we look at income. So, I think you know, the 90%, the 95% below the top have lost ground economically while the rich have gotten mm-hmm. richer, even during the current pandemic. The rich have gotten richer, mm-hmm. um, and so that that has changed a lot in 41 years. When my dad mm-hmm. worked at Libyan's Ford, you know, the 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 ratio difference between the average worker on the assembly line and the owners of the company. Yeah, it was great, but I mean, it's, it's like multiplied 20 times since then. We um, mm-hmm. just have the rich have gotten richer, the poor have gotten poorer. I think second, um, the second thing that I've seen changed is I think there's a greater awareness in our field, Vicki, that if we continue to focus on, Downstream variables, intrapersonal variables like what's between our ears, attitudes, knowledge, perceptions, beliefs—it's not going to make a hill of beans worth a difference, and it hasn't made a hill of beans worth a difference. We can see that in the literature. Um, did, you, did you? I don't know if you know this. Maybe, maybe you do. Maybe you don't. Less than ten percent of Americans today regularly perform health behaviors that would prevent chronic disease, things like not smoking, eating a healthy mm-hmm. diet, eating enough fruits and vegetables every day, getting regular exercise. I mean, less than 10%. So,
1: I actually wasn't familiar with that.
0: Yeah. I mean, we failed. Honestly, we failed. It, it it pains me to say that, but we have failed. And think of all the years of grant-funded programs I mean, 50, 60 years of millions, multiple millions of taxpayer dollars that have been spent on health behavior change programs, and they, mm-hmm. they haven't worked, less than 10% of Americans. So that, I, I think there, there's a growing awareness that something needs to change in public health. Mm-hmm. I think there's also a growing awareness in our field that I see is, like, once grant money dries up, what happens? Well we know what happens, right? People,
1: the program stops. Yeah.
0: The program stops. People go away. Those who plan the program go away. There's no more money. The workers of the program go away. There's no more money. The program ends. And what what I'm seeing is, especially with people of color and people who have lived in generational poverty, they are more skeptical when you leave because they,
1: absolutely. Yeah.
0: They feel like they've been used again. Like, you came, into my, you came riding into my community on your white stallion. Say, so you want to play by my game? You want some money? Come on. You got to play my way. And I think there's a growing awareness in our field that that doesn't work. Uh, you can't keep, as I say, chasing the grants and have this intermittent programming with no consistency, no theme, and you're going riding in and out of various communities. And you're leaving people actually, I think, worse off than they were at the beginning. So I think that is another thing that I've seen change for the better. And then I think the fourth fourth thing maybe uh, would be the advent of the cell phone and social media and devices. I mean, Mm -hmm. I didn't have those growing up. My parents were always saying, just go outside, just go outside and play. Mm -hmm. So we went outside and play. I rode my bike, I I played baseball, played basketball, played football, whatever. and now kids are, I mean, the most.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. It's attached. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, an, it's an additional hand.
0: Yeah. What they work out the most are those thumb muscles doing this. You know, uh-huh. my, my, I hear it, my own grandkids, my, my son and daughter-in-law constantly, you know, telling the kids, get off the devices, get off the devices. So I think uh-huh. the cell phone, I, I'm old enough to remember pre-cell phone days. I never had a cell phone. I was the last of my family to have a cell phone. I have one now and I love it. <laughs> and I read constantly from it. Uh, I read probably two hours a night from the internet. I read health blogs. I, I read everything on, the, on my phone. Um, I have to have true confessions. I do love my phone. But, you know, I remember those days. And so I think that's really changed things. We we not only are in the middle of a, a viral pandemic now, but we have an infodemic. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with that term. Okay. Infodemic mm-hmm. means we have all this information twenty four seven, cable news, internet, social media, always all this information, and much of it is simply not valid and reliable.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and people aren't taught to differentiate between what is and what isn't, and so they think that when someone says who has a white coat and has a stethoscope and looks official and says, "Yeah, mask wearing." face covering causes you to pass out or you're breathing your own carbon dioxide, but oh yeah, they believe it, right? Because they don't know how to determine what's valid and reliable and what's not. I think those are the things that have changed the most.
1: Damn. And it's the fact that we're constantly connected, Dr. Jordan. Yeah. We're constantly connected to different sources. So I wouldn't say it's hard for us to not know what to believe. It's the access that some of those without qualifications yeah. have. And just say, you know what? this I want to look like a doctor today and just give you what I think.
0: Yeah, no, you're right. I think being constantly connected, uh, I, I think of students I have in the undergraduate program, they send me emails and texts at two in the morning. Like, I'm sitting there on my phone, right? And they think we're constantly right. connected. And so uh, mm-hmm. I'm not, but you're exactly right. All
1: right. So then are some of those changes the reasons why you decided to start the 1795 um, group?
0: Not really. Um, you know, you would think that I did, but I didn't. Um, mm-hmm. I, I started the consulting world, the consulting work in my master's thesis. My master's thesis was yeah. a program evaluation of a program for, from Toledo Hospital. Um, that okay. was my master's thesis and that was recommended to me by Dr. Teljon. She knew that I'd been taking a lot of classes in program evaluation. By the way, I wanna give a, I don't know if this will ever be seen by Dr. Steven Jures, but he was instrumental in this journey. He was the professor in the College of Education at UT. He's long since retired, who taught all the program evaluation courses. And I took as many courses as I could from him. Mm -hmm. So it just kind of happened. In 1996, I started health promotion consulting services uh, as my own business because I I simply saw the need. There was a need for what I could do and what I had been taught to do. And so I, I didn't really respond to any of those concerns mm-hmm.
1: okay so of those 41 years in your career you've been at the university of toledo for 22 is that right
0: uh, let's see i started in the fall of 2001 so i guess this will be the start of my 22nd That's year and then mm-hmm. next fall will be my or 21st year next fall will be my 22nd year
1: okay And during your time at the University of Toledo, what are some of the classes that you've taught?
0: Oh, man, lots of classes. Um, Health 2000, Foundations of Health Education. I'm going to try and put them in chronological order. Um, Health 2940, that's the practicum course for undergraduate students. They have to take a kind of a mini internship, if you will. It's 100 hours in the community. I've I've supervised and set those up for many years. Uh, Health 3,800, Death and Dying. Uh, 4,100 is our health behavior course in the undergraduate level. I actually designed that course in 2010 and taught it for the first four or five years and then handed it Mm -hmm. off to a faculty member that we hired at that time. Uh, 4,200, Methods and Materials in Community Health. Let's see, uh, 4250, H-E-L 4250 program evaluation, which has now been taught a couple years. And then 4940, which is our senior field experience or what we call Mm -hmm. the internship. You know, students call it the internship. Um, We probably Mm -hmm. should change the name of that. It's called the senior field experience. At the graduate level, I've done three things mostly. I've supervised a lot of MPH students when they did their internship with me. Um, early in my career, I taught health communication, which was 5930 and 7930 uh, for the first three or four years in the summer. Mm-hmm. And then uh, for, for about 15 years, I remember Dr. Robert Stephen Roberts, who used to be a faculty member, he came to me early on and said, you want to trade classes? I'm really bored with this. I said, well, what, what are you going to give me? He said, well, I'll give you health behavior theory. And you give me like health promotion programming, whatever it was I mm-hmm. scheduled to teach. I had never taught it, never taught in either of them. And he gave me all those materials. So I thought it was a fair trade since I got all those materials. And so I taught health 600 slash eight eight six thousand 8, 6,000 slash 8,000 health behavior theory mm-hmm. for 15 years. And then handed that off to Dr. Glassman recently. So that's what I've done. Um, yeah, I think that's it.
1: And that's actually who I took uh, health behavior with, Dr. Glassman. So Uh, of all of those courses that you've named, do you have any favorite classes?
0: hmm. I would say, I know know we're not supposed to name favorites because we're going to alienate somebody, but I would say death and dying. Um, It is so so relevant. Like all of us are going to die, right? All of Mm -hmm. us are infected with a terminal disease right now. All of us, every single human, we're going to die. We just don't know when. And so to be able to teach about that, to be able to teach the the influence of society and culture, religion, to be able to talk about religion, uh, to be able to talk about the technical medical aspects, thats that's been fascinating. I love that field. And then I think the second course maybe is 4,200 methods and materials, simply because okay. I teach it like an overview course as getting people ready for, to take the CHES exam. And so... Uh, I think I think you helped me teach that course with me when you first came. I think we team-taught together, um, yes. and that really is a really good overview. I've, I used Dr. Jim McKenzie's book, my undergraduate advisor from Poland-Green State University. He's long since retired, but he's very active. He still writes a lot of textbooks, and so I've used his book for, I don't know, 21 years in that class. So I would say those two are my favorite, 3,800 Death and Dying and 4,200 Methods and materials.
1: Okay, and you are like on it when it comes to these course numbers, Doctor Jordan.
0: Well, like you know when you when you teach them and of course they're on my CV. Um, mm-hmm. You know you you list those things in your CV. I just I just have memorized them so. <laughs> All right, so I see
1: that you have an extensive record of peer-reviewed publishing and presenting in your 22-year career as a professor, Dr. Jordan. Um, What has been your dominant area of research in the past, and what about some new emerging areas of research that you're looking into getting into?
0: Um, The dominant areas of my research have been uh, adolescent sexuality, early on. Um, and it's interesting, you know, when, when you're at, and I, and I teach this to my doctoral students who take the class, professional issues with me, when you're at a university like UT, which has roughly 20,000 students, and it aspires to be a top research university, it's in the Mid-American Conference, um, we take anybody, right? We, we take anybody who's, who wants to come. It's not selective at all. You have to be a good teacher and a good researcher, good at community service. You have to be good at everything. You have to be good, really good at everything. So what, what you find, what I find anyway, is my research has been driven by my doctoral students, honestly. Um, I could have just kept researching adolescent sexuality, and that would have been it. Had I been at the University of Michigan... That's what I would have done. I would have been very narrow, very narrowly focused on one or two areas. When you're at a UT and you have to be good at everything, you can't focus, in my opinion, on one or two things. So adolescent Mm -hmm. sexuality was early on. Tobacco use prevention and cessation has been a constant theme of mine throughout the years. Uh, Cancer survivorship, uh, reducing racial and ethnic, Health disparities has been a big part of my career. Uh, mm-hmm. Health behavior change using theories and end of life issues. Uh, those have been my dominant areas. Emerging issues, um, I guess we're never too old to learn new things. I'm, I'm approaching mm-hmm. retirement in, co- in 20 months. Uh, but emerging issues have been COVID-19. Um, I think this year I may have the most publications in my entire career. I think five or six um, for a professor who's retiring is like unheard of, we're supposed to relax and not do anything. But I find that the pandemic needs to be studied, needs to be written about, needs to be talked about. And so I've had to learn a lot about infectious disease and, and that's carried over into research. And another, another emerging area for me is the economic part of the social determinants of health. I, think, I don't think that gets enough uh, credit in public health of the economics of joblessness or having a full-time job or having a part-time job or having to work two or three part-time jobs. I don't think, I think that inf- influences things like neighborhood, where we live, whether mm-hmm. we can afford healthcare. Um, so that those are two areas that are kind of emerging for me.
1: Okay, that's awesome. So, how do you see the people and the services of 1795 Group helping to address some of these major problem areas in the United States, such as obesity, diabetes, COVID nineteen?
0: Um, I think the answer to that question might be in the team that I've assembled. Um, I've intentionally sought out certain people with expertise in certain areas. Uh, For instance, Dwayne Heron. Dwayne was one of my first students at UT when I came here in 2021. Um, He's like my adopted son. Uh, I just, I love Dwayne, but he's now the director of maternal and child health at the local health department, Toledo-Lucas County Health Department. His expertise is not only in maternal and child health, it's in grant writing. He's a terrific grant writer. He's done for the whole state of Wisconsin. He was doing HIV education. Um, and so he has different expertise. Let's take Dr. Amy Watring. Dr. Watring was, came up through her undergraduate program, came from an MPH degree at UT, doctoral program. I chaired her dissertation. Um, you know, every single person that I've picked has been intentional. My own sister, Debbie Jordan Jackson, mm-hmm. Um, why is she on the team? Well, she has great expertise, and skills, and connections in end of life, uh, and so I think we can address many of these issues that you talked about. And I think you mentioned obesity, diabetes, yes. COVID nineteen, chronic disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can address, and you didn't you didn't mention end of life issues. I don't know if you know or not, but you know, physicians, healthcare providers aren't really well trained. Even nurses aren't well-trained in end-of-life issues. Um, and so we hope to reverse that by the people that I have brought on the team. that uh, That's, I think, my best answer.
1: That's a big task, Dr. Jordan.
0: It is a big task. Um, but I think you know we're, we're going to address kind of what comes to us, as always. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've never had a website, never had a brochure, never had a business card, never had anything. Didn't need it. Because people would call and say, hey, I hear you're a good program evaluator. Or I hear you're a good grant writer. Would you help me? So I think we'll, we'll kind of take what comes. But at the same time, we want to be proactive. And we already are being proactive in like, you know, Kelvin Freeman, who you may or may not know. I don't know if you know Kelvin. He's in our doctoral program. But I'm going to be chairing his dissertation on end-of-life issues. And so we're going to kind of have the 1795 group help him come around and support him. And so we're being proactive about doing some things that we uh-huh. want to do as well.
1: Okay. So this podcast is called Grassroots Health. Why did you choose that name? And what are some of the issues that you'll be talking about on the podcast? And what are some of the guests that you have scheduled?
0: Wow. <laughs> uh, I will say Aphrodite, my administrative assistant, has been booking the podcast guest. And um, she's already booked out to June of... 2023. Um, and so
1: That is amazing. Yeah,
0: I mean, and she's already like a, almost a year ahead. Um, and I think the podcast is just very popular with, even though this is the first, I think the topic has resonated with people. And so why do we choose the topic, grassroots health? Why do we choose the name? Um, that comes really from a couple of researchers that I've come to really love, and their name is Minkler and Wallerstein. Uh, I started using their work maybe 10 years ago when Dr. Thompson and I were working with black American women cancer survivors. And we realized that the best way to change their health and to get them involved was a grassroots approach, not a top-down approach, not us telling them what we were going to do. Hey, you want some of our grant money? You got to play by my rules, right? No, 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 no. That's, That's the wrong way. We let it come up from the bottom up, let them come up from them, and it was very effective. And so I think I, I chose that name just because it works. And I think it was Henry Ford who once said, uh, if, if we always do what we can, we always have done, we'll continue to get what we always have got, right? Um, That is
1: actually Einstein, and that's the definition of insanity. If you continue to do what you always do, you'll continue to get what you always get. Yeah,
0: definition of insanity. And and so in public health, if we continue down this road of top-down, intrapersonal variables, focus on what's between the ears, uh, I've even known, like, I, I won't name the guilty parties, but there are entities in our own county that measure things like hits to a website, How many brochures they passed out? How many health fairs they had? How many people came? I mean, what does that that tell you about reducing health disparities or health equity? It doesn't tell you anything. Uh, So we had 1,500 hits to our website. So what? It doesn't tell me anything. There's no outcomes there. So I think that the grassroots approach is not a top-down. It's from the people. The people bring it. Um, for example, Vicky, did you know that ninety-five percent of our healthcare dollars get spent on people or curative things, people that are already have fallen in the river of morbidity, and they're already drowning. Mm-hmm. And all day long, what healthcare providers do, they'll tell you this. I don't have I, I, I trained them, I know, I saw it. They dive in and they save people from drowning every single day, one after another. Here comes the next guy. Got to dive in. Here comes the next person. Got to dive in. Here comes the next person. Got. To... I mean, that's insanity, right? You keep doing what you're doing, and yet the United States spends more money than 11 peer nations, wealthy nations, and we have the worst health outcomes. Even co- mm-hmm. countries like Cuba and Chile have better health outcomes than what we do. Something's wrong. Right, we don't have the best healthcare system in the world. We just don't. So that's why I've chosen Grassroots Health. It's it's uh-huh. not based on sick care. We don't have a our healthcare system is not health. It's not health. It's sick, sick care. Um, and so that's that's my answer to your question. That's why we've chosen it.
1: Okay. And what are some of the issues that you'll be talking about on Grassroots
0: Health? I I can't really say the names of all the guests because Aphrodite has, uh, I call her Afro. She's done that for me, but I can say some of the topics. Um, Mm -hmm. so some of the topics are like, has public health lost credibility with the U S public? I think it has. Um, I, I think our messaging from the CDC, from, experts. I mean, you you turn on the TV on Sunday, on the Sunday shows, you hear different things. I mean, it's been terrible. So Dr. Michael Osterholm from the University of Minnesota is going to address that topic with me coming up after Labor Day. Um, Dr. John Ross, whos I've known John a long time, he's been a proponent of a single payer health system. And he says our health system is fractured. It's broken. And it is. Um, we're now at a breaking point where most American families cannot afford a hospital stay. It puts them in bankruptcy. So he's gonna talk about uh, the fractured nature of our healthcare system. Uh, We're gonna talk about misinformation and disinformation, how that has shaped people's thinking about health during this pandemic. Uh, We're gonna talk about gun violence. We have, I think, four shows on gun violence coming up. We even have a victim, a mother who lost a child to a mass shooting in a school. And she's going to be on our show and talking about that experience and how she used that passion, that grief to kind of create this grassroots movement. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot on racism in healthcare, racism in healthcare, racism in education, uh, racism in society, racism in criminal justice. Uh, we do, mm-hmm. unfortunately, our society still is very racist. And I'm, yeah. I'm talking to you um, as a black American woman, you you know this. And then uh, we have some end of life issues coming. Um, we're going to be talking to Carrie Northy. Carrie's got her own YouTube site. Uh, she's a mortician. She's an embalmer. And we're going to look at end of life from her perspective. We're going to have some healthcare providers on to look at end of life from their perspective. We're trying to get... Um, I think his name is Eben Alexander. He's a neurosurgeon, and I think he's. Okay. I think he's agreed recently to be on our show. He had a near-death experience. He did not believe in near-death experiences, but he had one. I don't know if it was during surgery or what. I haven't studied him yet, but uh, I know he's very famous, and so we're, we're going to. That's some of the topics we're going to have.
1: Mm-hmm. Those sound amazing, Dr. Jordan. I'm really looking forward to them. So when will the new podcast be available?
0: Well, this is episode number one, and uh, it'll be available next month. We're actually recording it here at the end of July. So this will be in August. Um, and then uh, we'll launch Dr. Michael Osterholm and his episode after Labor Day, because you know, I think okay. the first Monday of September is maybe the Labor Day. And so he will, he'll be, he's a national figure. He's on all the talk shows he is on CNN, he's on ABC news. He's really, really smart. And he's predicted this pandemic in 2017, actually 14 years ago. If you go back, he's on Oprah, there's YouTube video of him on Oprah. And she's just like, Whoa, what'd you just say? He's like predicting everything that has happened with supply chain demands and everything. Uh, he's very smart. He's been a public health epidemiologist for 45 years. Um, so it'll be out once a month. Uh, we That's as frequent as we can do it right now. Um, probably after I retire, we'll probably do it twice a month or even weekly. But um, that's that's the plan.
1: All right. So before we head out, is there anything else you would like to share with the listening audience?
0: Um, yeah, just one, one last thing. If if you're in health education or in public health, uh, and I know some of you are, um, I think the only way to create lasting change that's sustainable over time, that's really going to impact people's health, focus on the social determinants, first of all. Don't do what's between the ears. And you have to understand, most of our theories that we study in Class, doctoral class as well, come from what field? Well, they come from psychology. And psychology is an intrapersonal field. It's what's in my brain. We don't want to do that anymore, right? That's insanity. Keep doing what we're doing. And only 10% of Americans... I'm
1: expecting different results. Yeah,
0: mm-hmm. we, we don't want to do that. And so I would say use a bottoms-up grassroots approach let the people bring the ideas or you do some education, let them percolate on those ideas a bit um, and, and focus on the social determinants. Move upstream, not downstream. Don't no focus on like hits to the website. Come on, come on. I mean, how many people you had at a health fair? It doesn't tell you anything. Focus on things like joblessness, homelessness, mm-hmm. neighborhoods, right? Quality of education, focus on those things. The last thing I would mm-hmm. say, Vicki, is make sure you check out our website. Uh, it's www.1795.com or 1795.com. I know we don't say www anymore. Uh, I'm dating myself there. But 1795.com, there's a lot of excellent resources there. I'm writing a blog. Um, I'm, I think I have to have number four done next week, blog post number four. Uh, I don't know what it's going to be about yet, but there's a lot of really good things there for everyone Mm -hmm. to take advantage of.
1: Well, that is awesome. Thank you so much for just sharing your life experience with us, Dr. Jordan. I am so looking forward to see all of the amazing guest speakers that Grassroots Health is going to have. So if you are not subscribed or if you are not checked in or logged in with with the 1795 group online, please go do so now.
0: And I will say, Vicky, we're we're going to have the podcast available wherever you get your podcast. It's going to be on Apple Oh, perfect. Podcast. Okay, so it's on
1: all streaming devices, Spotify. Yeah. those Yeah, things Spotify. Okay. It'll awesome.
0: be everywhere, uh, anywhere you can, anywhere you get your podcast. It'll be it'll be available. Mm-hmm. So, thanks so much for interviewing yeah. me. That was fun.
1: My pleasure.
0: All right, we'll see you guys next time with Dr. Michael Osterholm right after Labor Day in September. Everyone, take care on grassroots health we'll be advertising three other podcasts that we listen to religiously number one the osterholm update with dr mike osterholm from the university of minnesota number two in the bubble with andy slavitt and number three medcram with roger Seahill md By the way, the best place to find MedCram is on YouTube. These three podcasts are simply outstanding. They've helped to keep me, my family, and my team alive and well during this blasted pandemic. Plus, I've learned so much from each of them. They're also very different. I'll tell you more about them next time. Next time will be in early October. That episode will be focused on our broken healthcare system. Is it really healthcare or is it sick care? My special guest will be Dr. Jonathan Ross, a longtime internist who has a lot to say about what he's seen over the years. You won't want to miss that episode. Make sure to subscribe to Grassroots Health. Tell your friends and family about us. We'll see you.